Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 20th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Jacinda Ardern resigns as New Zealand's prime minister. The U.S. hits its debt ceiling. Four are killed in a soccer stadium stampede in Iraq. Alec Baldwin is charged with involuntary manslaughter. Zelensky presses the West for tanks. South Africa confirms upcoming naval drills with Russia and China. Senegal's opposition leader says he'll run for president despite being on trial for rape. Trump allies are given seats on the House Oversight Committee. The Harvard Medical School joins a boycott of the U.S. news rankings. And a French soccer star wins a landmark maternity lawsuit. In our top story, news from New Zealand as Prime Minister Ardern resigns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, BBC News, Fox News, CNN, New York Times and Wall Street Journal. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced on Thursday that she will step down from her position on February 7th in advance of the national election scheduled for October 14th. She reportedly plans to remain a member of parliament until April. Citing burnout, she claimed not to have the heart and energy to lead the country anymore after her six, quote, challenging years in office. Labor members of parliament will vote for a new leader on Sunday, but the contest will go to the party's lay membership if no candidate receives two-thirds support. The announcement made at her Labor Party's annual caucus meeting also comes a month after Ardern was caught on a hot mic insulting opposition leader David Seymour during an exchange in which he asked her to apologize for a mistake she made and fix it. New Zealand's third female leader and one of the youngest leaders in the world, Ardern became prime minister in 2017 at the age of 37 and led the country through several crises, including the 2019 Christchurch mosque attacks and the COVID pandemic. Her response to the 2019 shooting solidified Ardern's image as a global liberal icon, while her administration's response to the COVID outbreak granted her a historic re-election victory in 2020. Recently, however, her party has been trailing in polls amid economic concerns and a perceived rise in violent crimes. Although Ardern still had been performing better than other political leaders, a survey released last month showed that support for her Labour Party had fallen from 41% to 33% in a year, five percentage points behind the National Party. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and let's begin our narrative spins with the left narrative from Radio New Zealand. This resignation is as surprising as our Dern's amazing rise to power in 2017. No one can blame her for being exhausted after leading the country during challenging years marked by disaster and death. She will be remembered as a compassionate and confident leader that has been able to renew the once moribund labor leadership with energy, focus, sense of purpose, and competency. And a right narrative is coming from Australian Financial Review. While Ardern indeed became an icon to the left and inspired women worldwide, her government's limitations have been troublesome at home. Anger first understandably rose from those opposing COVID mandates and rules, soon spreading among New Zealanders and reducing her popularity due to inflation and mounting violence. Her resignation comes at the right time. I think one thing 
that sometimes we don't judge politicians on when they're outgoing that maybe we should is like how deep a bench they've created behind them. You know, who's the next person in line that shares their ideology? And we can't judge Ardern on this yet. She's just leaving. But, you know, like uh, Obama didn't really leave someone left. And even Trump is a great example that there's no next Trump ready to come in due to him. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's just one of those wait and see situations. The United States hits its debt limit and could default in June. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, Fox News, NPR Online News, and The New York Times. The U.S. hit its $31.4 trillion borrowing limit Thursday, forcing Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to begin using extraordinary cash management measures in order to postpone default until June. The limit on how much the U.S. can borrow to pay for its expenses, known as the debt ceiling, pays military members' salaries and Medicare benefits, among other things, and is set by Congress. Republicans who took control of the House in the November midterm elections are hoping to use a debt ceiling raise as a bargaining chip to get spending cuts from Democratic President Joe Biden. Congress last voted to raise the ceiling in December of 2021. The Biden administration has chastised Republicans for using the debt ceiling as a trade chip and has said it would not negotiate with the GOP. A default could crush the U.S. economy and markets as it would raise doubts about the country's ability to pay its debts. Tax cuts and increased spending by Congress, while controlled by each party over the past several decades, have pushed the U.S. to this precipice. The battle between the two parties on this matter could be a sign of things to come now that Republicans rule the House and Democrats control the White House and Senate. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And as expected, there is some finger pointing happening. And we begin with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. The GOP has taken control of the House with a mandate on several issues. First and foremost, stopping wasteful government spending, which skyrocketed during the COVID pandemic. Meanwhile, Instead of negotiating, Biden is willing to dangle the economy over a cliff. The president should come to the table for the betterment of the country's present and future when the budget will hopefully be balanced. And the Democratic narrative comes from CNN. There's nothing to negotiate here. Republicans should raise the ceiling like they have numerous times under presidents from their own party and maintain the country's record of always paying its debts. Spending cuts for the future won't do anything to affect what the U.S. has already spent. Republicans are playing a dangerous game of roulette with the economy, and Americans are going to feel the pain if they don't relent. Wow, can you believe it? Both sides think the other one is at fault here. Yeah, you know, that surprises me. Well, you know, the exception that proves the rule, I guess. (laughs) Turning our attention to a tragedy in Iraq where a stampede outside a soccer stadium kills four. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Metro News, Sputnik, Reuters, and ABC. On Thursday, the Iraqi government announced that a stampede outside Basra International Stadium killed at least four people and left around 80 critically injured. Though Basra Governor Assad al-Aidani warned people without tickets not to flock to the stadium, videos shared on social media showed a sea of people gathered outside hoping to watch the country host its first international soccer match in four decades. The stampede reportedly broke out when tens of thousands of fans, arriving from throughout the Gulf region, were told that around 90% of the tickets were sold out ahead of the match. Iraq is hosting the eight-nation Arabian Gulf Cup for the first time since 1979. 
the home team was set to face Oman in the final. However, the Arab Gulf Cup Football Federation is now considering either postponing the match or moving it to another country. Official Iraqi media reported that giant screens were placed in various public places in Basra to allow fans, mainly from the Gulf states, to watch the match. The stampede comes after another incident occurred at the tournament's opening match in which commotion was reported in the VIP fan section, causing a Kuwaiti prince to leave the match. Two narratives spinning off this story, Eric. We have a narrative A from the LSE Middle East Center blog. The tragedy exposes Basra's decades-old woes. The southern Iraqi city was the battleground for most of Baghdad's western-imposed wars for years, which affected infrastructure and economic resources. More recently, it has suffered from unemployment, lack of water supply, security vacuums, and regional conflicts. Though its security infrastructure issues aren't the sole fault of the Iraqi leadership, the tenuous governance structure should have been more prepared. And the Arab Center Washington, D.C. is giving us a narrative B for this story. The government couldn't have predicted this chaotic stampede. This is deeply disappointing as Iraq fought against all odds to improve its regional image through sports events like these. A successful end to the Arab Gulf Cup could have boosted Gulf tourism to Basra and improved current Iraq-Gulf state relations. But unfortunately, the tragedy tarnished the country's image only a few hours before the final ceremony. Actor Alec Baldwin is charged with manslaughter in connection with the Rust movie set shooting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, The New York Post, The Washington Post, and Insider. Santa Fe, New Mexico District Attorney Mary Carmack Altwees on Thursday announced that actor Alec Baldwin will be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter for his involvement in the fatal 2021 shooting of cinematographer Halnia Hutchins on the set of Rust. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the on-set armorer who gave assistant director David Halls the loaded revolver before he gave it to Baldwin, has been charged with the same two counts. Her lawyer says she showed Halls an empty chamber and that he then told Baldwin the weapon was, quote, cold. The indictments conclude a long investigation into Baldwin, Gutierrez, and assistant director David Halls, from which all three are accused of having been partially at fault in the shooting that killed Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza. The first charge carries a maximum sentence of 18 months in prison, though since the second count involves a firearm enhancement, a conviction there would carry a mandatory five-year sentence. Halls has pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor. Baldwin has previously stated that he would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger, with Gutierrez-Reed's lawyer suggesting the sheriff's office investigate Seth Kenny, the man who supplied the production with prop weapons and ammo. This comes after Hutchins' husband, Matthew Hutchins, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Baldwin and others, from which they reached an undisclosed settlement. The Hutchins family on Thursday praised the announcement of the charges. Those were the facts. There are two spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from USA Today. Accidentally killing someone is obviously different from first-degree intentional murder. But that doesn't mean Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed's actions weren't criminal. The pair were horrendously negligent and careless in how they handled the gun, which are easily avoidable mistakes. Halnia Hutchins' tragic death was entirely avoidable. And Narrative B comes from the Los Angeles Times. 
First of all, both Gutierrez, Reed, and Baldwin were told by weapons professionals that the gun was not loaded. Second, it was Hutchins herself who told Baldwin to point the gun toward her as she was setting the camera up for a scene. This was an incredibly rare tragedy unforeseen by anyone on the film crew, but wrongfully indicting people won't bring Hutchins back and won't provide justice for anyone. And we continue our coverage of the conflict in Ukraine as we look at day 330 as Zelensky presses Western partners for tanks. At the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland on Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the West for continued military support, but bemoaned the lack of tanks from countries including the U.S., Poland, and Germany. Speaking via video link, he criticized a, quote, lack of specific weaponry, adding, quote, there are times where we shouldn't hesitate when someone says, I will give tanks if someone else will also share his tanks. The comments were a veiled criticism of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who on Wednesday dodged a question about whether Germany will commit its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. Poland and Finland have previously said they're prepared to send their tanks, but Germany must give permission for them to be re-exported. A German government source told Reuters that Schultz has repeated the stipulation that Germany will allow its tanks to be sent to Ukraine only if the U.S. agrees to do the same. At time of writing, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Germany's new defense minister Boris Pistorius were yet to resolve differences currently causing Berlin to block the sending of the Leopard 2 to Kiev. Under the condition of anonymity, U.S. officials told the Associated Press on Wednesday that the U.S. was preparing a $2.6 billion military aid package that'll include nearly 100 striker combat vehicles and at least 50 Bradley armored vehicles, but will exclude the Abrams tanks sought by Ukraine. Zelensky's ramping up of pressure comes as Austin began hosting two days of meetings with Western counterparts at the U.S. Ramstein Air Base in southwest Germany on Thursday. The agenda is to coordinate future military aid to Ukraine. Elsewhere, following a New York Times report that the Biden administration is warming to the idea of providing Zelensky with weapons capable of striking Crimea, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said it would be an extremely dangerous escalation. Quote, this will mean taking the conflict to a whole new level, which certainly will not bode well in terms of global European security, he said. Meanwhile, over the past day, Russian attacks have been recorded in the regions of Chernihiv, Sumy, and Donetsk, as well as in Dnipropetrovsk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. Four civilians were reported injured in each of Donetsk and Kherson. Pro-Russia officials said one civilian was reported injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk. All right, Eric, thanks for that rundown of the facts on this long-running conflict. We have an anti-Russian narrative from The Guardian. These meetings must see Germany, which has a unique historical responsibility to uphold the sovereignty and freedom of Ukraine, consent to the use of Leopard 2 tanks by Kyiv. Ukrainians were some of the greatest victims of Hitler and Stalin in Berlin. Now is the opportunity to intercede on Putin's war of terror against an innocent people. The whole of the West will judge the courage of Germany on whether it allows tanks to be sent to Kyiv. And TASS is giving us a pro-Russia narrative. Germany, like much of the West, is fatigued with the special operation in Ukraine, which involves no one except Kyiv and Moscow. A recent survey indicated that more than 40% of Germans oppose the supply of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukrainian forces. 
while a third think the German government is spending too much on intervention in the conflict. The West should not bully Berlin into this unnecessary escalation. South Africa confirms upcoming naval drills with Russia and China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Africa News, DW, Zawaya, Zawaya, Independent Online South Africa, Bloomberg, and the Associated Press. South Africa confirmed on Thursday that it will host a multilateral naval exercise with Russia and China off its coast in February, the second time that such an exercise is held in the presence of the three naval forces. The 10-day drills dubbed Operation Masi, which means smoke in the local Swana language, will take place from February 17 to 27th off the port cities of Durban and Richards Bay on the country's east coast. A statement from the South African military said the exercises were intended to strengthen already flourishing relations with China and Russia. Pretoria, which recently assumed the chairmanship of the BRICS Group of Nations, has so far declined to condemn Moscow over the Ukraine war. This joint exercise will reportedly see more than 350 South African Army personnel from various military branches and divisions collaborate on operational activities and information with their Russian and Chinese counterparts. Meanwhile, the opposition Democratic Alliance criticized the decision accusing the government of abandoning its neutral stance on Russia and risking alienating South Africa from the West. Far ahead of Russia, the USA, Germany, Japan, and the UK are among the country's major trading partners. South Africa's announcement comes days before Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's trip to the country and U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit two days later to wrap up a three-country visit to Africa. Those were the facts as we look at the two spins that have emerged. Daily Maverick is giving us narrative A for this story. It is outrageous that while Russia is raining missiles on Ukraine, Pretoria is confirming joint naval drills with Russia and the no less autocratic and increasingly aggressive China. And while the vast majority of South Africans believe that South Africa should stand by Ukraine, Pretoria's stance is not only immoral, but downright foolish, given that the West, not Russia or even China, are South Africa's most important export destinations. Therefore, Pretoria's negligent alienation from its Western allies amounts to an act of political and economic denial that is likely to backfire. Narrative B comes from the Asia Times. While China and Russia are striving to absorb strategically important South Africa into their vision of a multipolar world order, Pretoria is trying to maintain a balanced position between the emerging BRICS and NATO. Therefore, the upcoming trilateral naval exercises should not be taken as evidence that South Africa is switching sides from NATO in the West to China and Russia. Moreover, South Africa's military doctrine, equipment, and tactics are still heavily dependent on the Western military bloc, with which it has held more drills than with China and Russia. BRICS collaboration doesn't translate to Western alienation. What do you think, Eric? If someone practices with the other team, does that mean they're with them, or do they have the right to, to kind of do what they like? How do you feel about that? It depends on whose shirts and whose skins, man. <laughs> I, I miss pennies. Did you have pennies when you were a kid? Like those weird plastic shirts that you'd wear over your oh, regular shirt yes. in the gym class? Yeah. Like we a had yellow those. square. Uh-huh. Yeah. I remember those. <laughs> I like pennies. I might bring those back. <laughs> you should. In our next story, a Senegal opposition leader is planning to run for president despite a rape trial. Here are the facts. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Channels TV, African News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and The Conversation. In a press conference on Thursday, Senegalese opposition leader Usman Sanko stated that he will run for president next year despite facing rape charges. He added that he cannot envision that any judge would sentence him to the five years in jail he potentially faces. This comes after lawyers for both Sanko and his accuser revealed on Wednesday that a judge ordered him to face a criminal court trial for the alleged rape and death threats against an employee of a beauty salon he reportedly went to for a massage. This trial could potentially threaten his plans to run for president in 2024 and stoke political tensions in the country, with skirmishes having already broken out in March 2021 after Sanko was first summoned and arrested. Sanko and his supporters claim the charges are politically motivated to remove him from the presidential race. He enjoys widespread support among Senegalese youth, who are frustrated with the current president Macky Sall's government. After placing third in the 2019 presidential elections, Sanko is likely to force a runoff election in 2024 if he's eligible to run, due to the growth of his political base. He is a former civil servant who's seen as an anti-establishment politician. President Saul, who has yet to say whether he will run for a third term, has suggested that this matter is for courts to handle. However, his rivals have been the subject of criminal charges in the past, including two that were eliminated from the past presidential race. All right, thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have a narrative A from DW. Usman Sanko is the victim of a politically motivated conspiracy planned by the Saul government, which has the clear intent to eliminate him from the 2024 presidential elections. Senegal's justice system is not independent and is once again working to bar those that would work against the establishment in a healthy manner. Radio France International giving us narrative B for this story. Sanko's position as a rival to President Saul has nothing to do with the charges against him. Brazen threats of retaliation against the victim must be deeply investigated. The judiciary must work thoroughly to hold him accountable for his wrongdoing and not let politics sway the decision. Trump allies are granted seats on the House Oversight Committee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, Democracy Now!, Fox News, Business Insider, and The New York Times. Multiple right-flank Republicans, including Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, Paul Gosser, Republican of Arizona, Lauren Boebert, Republican of Colorado, and Scott Perry, Republican of Pennsylvania, have landed seats on the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. The appointments made by the House Steering Committee must now be voted on by the entire GOP conference, which reportedly usually votes in line with the appointments. This comes after the White House stated it would not comply with GOP oversight requests until the new Congress assumed power. Many of the appointed representatives are supporters of former President Trump and have been at the center of controversy in the past. Green has also been appointed to the Homeland Security Committee. Green and Gosser were previously stripped of their committee assignments. Under Democratic House leadership in 2021, Others, including Boebert, Perry, and Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, were detractors during the vote for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Many of these appointments are part of the concessions McCarthy made to obtain enough votes to become Speaker, as he agreed to give the Freedom Caucus members one-third of committee assignments. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Democratic narrative is our first spin coming from Newsweek. These committee assignments show the GOP's true colors, particularly McCarthy's. 
appointing Green, who's been known for spreading anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim messages, as well as conspiracy theories, to the Homeland Security Committee is a direct threat to marginalized groups and the nation as a whole. McCarthy has sold his soul and his party to QAnon, and the country will be worse for it. Counter that with this Republican narrative from Newsmax. These appointments send a strong message. Under a Republican watch, the Democrats' anti-American policies will be overturned, and their poor policies will be investigated. Biden's devastating open borders policy, the woke agenda in schools, reckless spending, and the debt crisis must all be properly explored. This is a win for the GOP and the nation. Harvard Medical School joins the boycott of U.S. news rankings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, the Harvard Crimson, Forbes, and Axios. On Tuesday, the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. George Daly, announced that the school no longer will submit data to U.S. News & World Report's annual Best Medical Schools ranking. It's the second graduate school from the university to boycott the list in recent months. Daly cited concerns about fairness and equity in withdrawing from the U.S. news rankings, saying that, quote, as unintended consequences, rankings create perverse incentives for institutions to report misleading or inaccurate data. Last year, deans of prominent law schools announced that their universities would no longer participate in U.S. News's annual law school rankings because of perceived flaws and the view that the rankings did not reflect the values of legal education. High-profile withdrawals prompted U.S. News to make a number of changes in its methodology. U.S. News & World Report has ranked colleges since 1983, a practice the organization defends as necessary in an era when college costs have spiraled out of control and students need a way to compare diverse academic institutions across a single common data set. Eric Gertler of U.S. News said that the company feels that students deserve access to all information necessary to make a school selection. In addition, Dean Daly wrote, What matters most to me as dean, alumnus, and faculty member is not a number one ranking, but the quality and richness of the educational experience we provide at Harvard Medical School that encourages personal growth and lifelong learning. All right, narrative A on this story comes from the Prep Scholar. U.S. News College rankings may be the most prominent. However, its lists come with major flaws that can mislead impressionable prospective students and negatively impact their college application process. U.S. News focuses far too much on outcomes and neglects students' quality of life. And the rankings perpetuate perceptions of prestige instead of rewarding universities that cater to their students' needs. Narrative B coming from U.S. News & World Report. U.S. News rankings have been the gold standard for school comparison and offer a very important and useful resource for students. No one claims their rankings to be gospel, and U.S. News's mission is to provide students with more information as they look to make one of the most important decisions in their adult lives. And from time to time, we have nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 31% chance there will be fewer than 400 public four-year colleges in the U.S. by the year 2050. I mean, you used uh, U.S. News and World Report when you chose to go to Harvard Medical School, didn't you, Scott? Oh, absolutely. They were a major factor in me knowing all the schools that would never accept me. How else would I have a list of all of them? Exactly. 
Our final story, a soccer star wins a landmark maternity lawsuit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, Bleacher Report, The Daily Mirror, FIFA's official website, and ESPN. On Tuesday, French soccer club Lyon was ordered to pay former player Sarah Bjork Gunnar Sodid €82,000, that's $88,000, in unpaid salaries following a landmark FIFA tribunal ruling last May. According to a statement by the global players' union, FIFA Pro, Lyon must also pay an additional 5% annual interest from September 10, 2022, until the outstanding dues have been cleared. The French club reportedly faces a transfer ban if it fails to pay the compensation within 45 days. The midfielder termed the verdict a wake-up call for all clubs and said her victory sends a strong message that all players who get pregnant have rights and guarantees. Joining Lyon in 2020 and winning two Champions League titles before leaving for Juventus in July of 2022, the 32-year-old captain of the Iceland national team had alleged Lyon did not pay her full salary after she signed off on maternity leave in April of 2021. As per FIFA rules, female players are entitled to a maternity leave of at least 14 weeks, at a minimum two-thirds of their contracted salary. In addition, clubs must offer alternate employment and provide adequate medical and physical support on their return. The club blamed French law for not allowing it to follow FIFA regulations, including the duty of care guidelines. Those were the facts. Here are the spins. Narrative A is our first one, coming from the Players' Tribune. This ruling highlights the trauma pregnant footballers must endure safeguarding their basic professional rights. Not just the demands of strict training and playing schedules, but also how soccer clubs' severe lack of support for their expecting players during and after pregnancy are usually incompatible with raising a child. Women players are often pressured to push back having children until retirement. And Narrative B comes from Rugby Pass. Only a few professional soccer players have given birth during their playing careers. There are many reasons players decide not to have children until retirement, though job security is likely a major factor. Biological differences in strength, speed, and stamina are often used as excuses for pay inequality between men's and women's sports. Until systematic sexism in sports is addressed, such victories will elude female players who face highly precarious playing careers. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, January 20th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read 5,000 stories from over 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.